The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who by the leading of a star didst manifest thy only begotten Son to the peoples of the earth, lead us who know thee now by faith to thy presence, where we may behold thy glory face to face. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And that is the collect for the Feast of the Epiphany. And it's an appropriate one as we begin our study today uh, in Matthew chapter 2. And we take a look at this study of the coming of these wise men to worship the Christ child. So if you have your Bibles with you, you open them to Matthew chapter 2. And we'll go ahead and read through the first 12 verses and then come back and look at them in closer detail. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. Whenever I think about the coming of the Magi to worship the Christ child, I can't help but think of something that the Apostle Paul wrote years later to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, the Apostle writes these words. He says, But consider your calling, brothers, for not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Paul was reminding the church in Corinth that not many of them, by the standards of the world, were influential and wise people. And that was certainly true of the early disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew, the rest. None of them were what we would consider influential people. They were not highly educated. Certainly of all the apostles, Paul was the most highly educated, but he was not part of that original group. Indeed, most of the Christians, on the whole, though there are exceptions, of course, and that's what we're going to talk about today, but on the whole, most of the early believers were not influential. Christianity did not spread among the upper echelons of society. It spread among the poor and the dejected, lost. They were the ones who immediately recognized Christ and recognized the good news that he had come to bring. So Paul says not many were wise. But here in Matthew chapter 2, we are reminded of the fact that there were at least some in those early days who were. There were some people who were wise enough that they began to seek Christ and to find Him. And that's what we are here to talk about today, the visit of the wise men to visit the Lord Jesus Christ. They must have been very important people. Um, There's much that we don't know about them, and we'll get to that in a minute, but they were evidently influential enough that they caused quite a stir. That's one of the things that Matthew says, that when they appeared in Jerusalem... We're told that Herod the king was troubled, as was the entire city. So whoever these ancient visitors were, they were influential enough to cause a stir in the city of Jerusalem, which of course was the capital of the region. 
Now, this is one of those stories that we have heard so many times that we think we know everything about it. There's nothing new that we can possibly learn. But the problem is that it's one of these stories that we have heard so many times that sometimes the vines and tendrils of tradition have obscured the real story, the real truth. Uh, for, exa for example, how many of you are familiar with the story of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree? You all familiar with that? And throwing the silver dollar uh, across the Potomac River in spite of the fact that they weren't actually using silver dollars at that point. Where do those stories come from? Well, they're legends that grew up. They were compiled in a book by a fellow named Parson Weems, who wrote one of the early biographies of George Washington. And, of course, we now take them as the gospel truth. But they were vines and tendrils of tradition that sort of grew up and obscured the real man. Well, there are vines and tendrils of tradition that I think have grown up and obscured the real story of these ancient visitors who came to Jerusalem to worship the young Christ. First thing we need to understand is that the Bible really doesn't tell us much about them. We don't even know how many actually came. Now, every Christmas time, you hear the carol and we sing the carol, We three kings of Orient are. Bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. We all know that, don't we? Actually, the Bible doesn't tell us how many came. We know that there was more than one, but it doesn't tell us how many more than one there were. It never tells us there were three. We assume there were three because they offered three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but nowhere in the scripture does it actually tell us there were three. There may have only been two, and they just offered three gifts. There may have been more than three. The scripture doesn't tell us. This is, again, a good lesson for us to not assume that we understand, but to read carefully what the text actually says. So how many came, we don't know. Were they actually kings? There's nothing in the text that indicates that. They were influential people. The word magi, which is the Greek word that is used here, is an interesting word. It is notoriously difficult to translate. But probably the best rendering would be powerful or influential ones. Now, certainly kings are powerful and influential beings. But again, there's nothing indicates in the text that they were actually kings, that they were actually people who reigned in a foreign land. All we know is that they were influential individuals, and that's why they caused such a stir. When did they actually arrive? When we have pictures of the Magi, the three, coming to worship the baby Christ, where is that normally depicted? In the manger, in the stable, that's exactly right. And we know that that's where the shepherds came, because they arrived almost immediately after the baby was born. But oftentimes we depict the Magi coming as well shortly after that, perhaps even on the same night to worship the Christ child. But there's nothing in the text that indicates that. In fact, what the text actually indicates is that they came at a much later point. We're told that when Mary and Joseph finally met the Magi, they were not in the manger anymore. It's not surprising. We're told that they were already living in a house in Bethlehem. And why not? The only reason that they were in the manger that night is because when they went to the inn, it was full. Remember, all of these people had come to Bethlehem and to Jerusalem and to the surrounding regions. Why? Because of the census. They were under the orders of the Roman Empire. And that's why every available place where you could lodge for the night was already filled. That's the only reason why they went and stayed in the manger. And you can imagine Joseph very much concerned for the welfare of his wife and this new child, wanted to make sure that as soon as possible he would get her out of that unsanitary environment into a better one. The text doesn't tell us that the Magi actually came and worshipped Christ in the manger. Now, I know I'm just exploding all of your images of Christmas today, and you're going to have to go and redo everything when you decorate when December rolls around. It says that they followed a star, or does it? The word star can actually be used to describe almost any heavenly manifestation in the first century. 
People referred to things that were stars that were not necessarily stars. They were just manifestations in the heavens. So we don't know if this was actually a star in the proper sense, that is to say, a sun in some far-off distant galaxy. We really don't know that. The earliest explanations in the church was that what they saw was actually Halley's Comet. That's the earliest explanation, that Halley's Comet appeared at just about this time in history, and so perhaps that's what they saw. It was something that they could have followed, of course, as well, as it made its track across the sky. Johannes Kepler, who was the father of modern astronomy, suggested that it perhaps wasn't the comet, but perhaps it was the conjunction of two planets, Saturn and Jupiter, which would have appeared very bright in the sky at about this time in history as well. The reality is we just don't know. We don't know what kind of a star it was. And we don't know that they actually followed the star as, in a sense, the star actually moved. What the text actually says was that his star arose. It appeared when they were in the east. And then it reappeared. Evidently, it disappeared because we're told that when they got to Jerusalem and inquired as to where the Christ child was to be born, the star reappeared over the place where he was born. So you have this image of this, these wise men coming across the, the deserts and the dunes and following the star. There's nothing in the text that actually says that. Who were they? Well, they were probably Persians. This whole order of the Magi or the Magi uh, arose out of the ancient Persian Empire. Now, they would eventually spread throughout much of the Near East, but they probably came from Persia. They were learned men. They were counselors to kings, not necessarily kings, but they were people who were oftentimes considered to be advisors to kings. And they were a combination of astronomers and astrologers. Now, as Christian people today, we are very leery of such things as astrology. We say, well, that's dabbling in the occult, and that's not the sort of thing that we should do. You know, people sometimes go, even sometimes former first ladies would go to astrologers and try to figure out how things were going to happen. And we're very leery of that sort of thing. In fact, when you see astrologers and fortune tellers, you normally see them in the seediest parts of town. Did you ever notice that? They're normally in some sort of ramshackle building, some sort of cinder block building in the worst part of town. I've always thought that was strange. I mean, if these people could tell the future and tell your fortune, why aren't they among the wealthiest people in the community? So when we think of that sort of thing, we think of people who are charlatans. But you need to understand that in the ancient world, many people, almost every culture, and this included the Jews as well, recognized that God sometimes spoke in manifestations, in marvelous things. And the heavens were considered to be God's handiwork, and so they were oftentimes looking for signs in the heavens. So they were astronomers and they were astrologers. Some, of course, were charlatans. Some were wicked. In Acts chapter 8, we have the story of Simon Magus, the Samaritan magician. And by the way, that's where the word magic comes from. It comes from this word magi or magi. And he was a magician. He was one who tried to purchase the Holy Spirit from the apostles. I notice that when the apostle Paul, or apostle Peter, excuse me, and John, they laid their hands on people, the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would be able to speak in tongues. Uh, Peter and John had the ability to heal people. Uh, to heal that man at the temple gate called Beautiful. And so he wanted to purchase this power, and of course he was cursed by Peter for that. So there were some who were charlatans, but there were some who were very good, very noble, very wise men indeed. Now going back into the Old Testament, you know the story of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three that were thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel, who was thrown into the what? into the lion's den. They were magi. They were living in Babylon. You'll recall that they had been taken captive as the entire kingdom of Judah had, carried off by King Nebuchadnezzar into captivity in Babylon. And there they rose to prominence as advisors to the king. They were known as magi. So they came from this part of the world. Some were bad, some were good. And some evidently probably from the time of Daniel, have been keeping the flame alive. Now, this is one of the most remarkable things 
You might ask yourself, well, why in the world would these people be looking for a king to come out of Jerusalem, to come out of Judah, to come out of Israel? Why, why would they be expecting that? It probably can be traced the whole way back to Daniel. Daniel and his friends had been deported from Israel, from Judah rather, and taken over into Babylon, and there they had been held for years. But when they went, they took their faith with them. Why was it that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den? Because he refused to worship pagan gods. Why was it that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace? because they refused to worship the pagan gods. They were proclaiming the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This should be a great encouragement to us, because sometimes we think when we're engaged in Christian work, particularly in the work of evangelism, we wonder if it's making any difference whatsoever. Do you ever wonder about that? Sometimes when you're raising your children, you wonder to yourself, is it making any difference whatsoever? Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, raise up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I know somebody just said, huh. I want you to listen to that. Raise up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Doesn't necessarily mean that when he's young, he won't depart from it. Well, you see, Daniel shared that good news of a coming Messiah to the people there in Babylon. And evidently that made an impact on people. And there were a group of people who for centuries had kept alive that hope that were anticipating that one day the Messiah would eventually arrive. And there was much that they perhaps did not understand. There was much that they did not know. But they did know that at one point a Savior was going to come and that Savior was going to arrive somewhere in and around Jerusalem. And so for centuries, these people, these learned men, these astronomers, these astrologers have been waiting and watching for a sign that God was going to act in history. William Barclay, who is good on some things and not so good on other things, uh, sometimes has some very interesting insight in terms of ancient history. And he said this, he said, it may seem to us extraordinary that those men should set out from the east to find a king. But the strange thing is that just about the time Jesus was born, there was in the world a strange feeling of expectation of the coming of a king. Even the Roman historians knew about this. Not so very much later than this, Suetonius could write, quote, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. He goes on, Tacitus, the ancient writer, tells us of the same belief that there, quote, was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. The Jews had the belief that about that time one from their own country should become governor of the inhabitable earth. At a slightly later time, we find that Teridates, king of Armenia, visiting Nero at Rome with his magi along with him, there's the word, we find the magi in Athens sacrificing to the memory of Plato. Almost at the same time as Jesus was born, we find Augustus Caesar, the Roman emperor, being hailed as the savior of the world, and Virgil, the Roman poet, writing his fourth ecologue, which is known as the messianic ecologue about the golden days to come. He says, therefore, there is not the slightest need to think that the story of the coming of the Magi to the cradle of Christ is only a lovely legend. It is exactly the kind of thing that could easily have happened in the ancient world. When Jesus Christ came to the world, there was an eagerness, an expectation. Men were waiting for God, and the desire for God was in their hearts. They had discovered that they could not build the golden age without God. It was to a waiting world that Jesus came. And when he came, the ends of the earth were gathered at his cradle. It was the first sign and symbol of the world conquest of Christ. So you see that at this point in history, the world seemed to be pregnant with expectation and hope. Almost every culture recognized that something was about to happen. You could almost feel it in the air. 
The Romans believed it, the Greeks believed it, and the Jews believed it. And what is ironic is that some of these people who were pagan people somehow believed that it was going to happen in this particular part of the world. One of my favorite passages when it comes to Christmas time comes from Paul's epistle to the Galatians. If you have your finger there, put it in Matthew and turn to Galatians for just a moment. This is one of those passages that you ought to underline. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now listen to that again. But when the fullness of time had come, then God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Expression, the fullness of time, can also be translated when the time was right. If you were here at St. Philip's on Christmas Eve, you heard me preach on the idea that Christ's birth was really a rescue mission. That Jesus Christ came into this world for the purpose of rescuing us from sin and death and judgment. And I said, like all rescue missions that are successful, and indeed it was successful, it had to be well-planned, it had to be well-timed, and it had to be well-executed. And that is exactly what Paul was telling us here, that when God decided to rescue you and rescue me, he left nothing to chance. When the time was just right in the history of the world, God acted. There's an old expression that comes from the life of the theater that says, timing is everything. If there are any actors out there, you know how true this is. Timing is everything. This is particularly true if you're a comedic actor. The best comedians are those who not only know their lines, they know precisely how to deliver those lines and precisely when to deliver those lines in order to get the maximum benefit. A true master of this was Lucille Ball. Probably no one had better timing than Lucille Ball did. She knew exactly how to deliver her line. She knew exactly how to act in such a way as to get the most laughter. Her timing was perfect. Well, God's timing was perfect. I've sometimes pointed out that at this point in history, the world was a veritable petri dish for the growth and the expansion of the Christian gospel. Just a couple of factors to take into consideration at the time that Jesus was born. First of all, it was the first time in the history of the world in which there was, for the most part, universal peace. This was the famous Pax Romana, that's right, the Roman peace. The world had, up to this point, been torn by strife and conflict. But the Romans, and they could be brutal at times, nevertheless had managed to achieve a degree of peace throughout the ancient world at just this time in history, which made it possible for people to pass from one place to another with relative safety. Now, that had never happened in the world before, and after the fall of Rome, it would not happen again until centuries later. So for the first time in the history of the world, there was relative peace, and everybody acknowledged it. The second thing was that for the first time in history, there was, at least since the fall of the Tower of Babel, there was a common language. Now, as you all know, the official language of the Roman Empire was what? Latin, of course it was. But that was not the lingua franca of the day. That was not the language of most people. The language of commerce in the first century was Greek. Now, while the official language was Latin, the language that most people spoke was Greek. Even most of the disciples were bilingual. They may have spoken their own language, Aramaic, which was a form of Hebrew, but they also spoke Greek. You'll recall that when Jesus was crucified, Pontius Pilate ordered that one of the placards placed over his head should be written in Greek, this is king of the Jews, so that everybody could understand it. Now what that meant was that if you could speak Greek, 
you could pretty much go to any part of the Roman Empire, which in their minds was the known world of the day, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and people would understand you. In other words, you didn't have to learn another language or another dialect in order to proclaim the good news of Christ. As long as you knew Greek, you could proclaim the gospel to every living creature that had never happened before. Never happened before. The other thing was this. It was easy to travel throughout the world. You'll recall that Jesus' final words to his disciples were, Go ye into all the world and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always, even into the ends of the earth. Well, those early disciples, most of them, had never traveled more than 100 miles from the place where they had been raised. And Jesus was sending them out into the world. And you think to yourself, well, they didn't have forms of public transportation like we did today. They couldn't get on an airplane or pick up a bus or go and get on a train and travel from one place to the next. And yet, for the first time in history, they did have the ability to travel about the ancient world with relative ease. How many of you have heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome? Well, in that day, it was literally true. Almost every road did lead to Rome. The way that the Romans had to maintain peace within their empire was by means of their vast army. The Roman legions marched all over the world to maintain peace and to protect their citizens or their subjects. And the Roman army was a great road builder. Wherever it went, they built roads. That's how the army marched. You could not move thousands of men through the underbrush or over the mountains. So they built roads, and these roads would eventually, like a great hub of a wheel, be traced back to Rome. And so you could travel all over. Some of those Roman roads are still in existence today. Some of them are still in use today. And it's far off parts of the British Empire where the Romans had originally gone centuries before. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? A common language, a universal peace, roads that led to every point of the compass. As I said, it was a veritable petri dish for the expansion of the Christian gospel. It had never happened at any point up to that, and it never happened again. At just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Now, Matthew's point here is not that wise men came to Jesus. His point was that wise Gentiles came to Jesus. I think this is one of the reasons why he doesn't fill in a lot of the details that we over the centuries have filled in. We've said there were three wise men, and we even gave them names. Did you know that? Tradition holds that their names were Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. Well, the text doesn't tell us those names, but you see, we want to attach names to them. Matthew's not particularly interested in how many came. He's not particularly interested in their names. He's not particularly interested in just what the star was or how it manifested. He's interested in the fact that what? Wise men from the East. Gentiles were coming to Christ. We pointed out that Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, and yet in many respects it is the most evangelistic. It is the one that is concerned primarily with the expansion of the Gospel beyond the confines of the, Jew, of the Jews to the known world. So it's interesting to note that this Gospel begins with people who are from off coming to Jesus Christ and worshiping Him. And the gospel ends with Jesus sending his disciples from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and finally to the uttermost parts of the earth. So if you really want to know what the story of the Magi is about, that is what the story of the Magi is all about. It is about the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what the word epiphany means, a revelation. It was the revelation of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, when you come into St. Philip's Church and you stand in the narthex, you see that marvelous painting that was done that hangs over the door. It's called the Nunc Dimittis. And it is the story of what? Ancient Simeon, 
who when the Christ child was born took that little babe in his arms and he said, Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For these eyes of mine have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That's what the Magi are all about. The first people who came to worship Christ were not among the in crowd. The first to come were lowly shepherds. And even the powerful ones who came did not come from within his own people. They came from far off lands. Now one thing that Matthew does tell us in detail is what they brought. They came, they came from afar, and they came bearing gifts. Now, you need to remember that we can't fill in the blanks here. We, we don't know how much the Magi really knew. We don't know how much insight had been given to them by God the Holy Spirit. We don't know that they actually understood everything about this Christ child who was being born. They didn't understand perhaps everything that he had come to do. But they did come bearing gifts. Now that was not altogether surprising. That was typical in the ancient world. When you went to visit somebody of importance, you always offered gifts. We see that sort of thing today. And you normally brought gifts that were representative of your homeland. Uh, for example, when an ambassador comes from a foreign land, they oftentimes, when they present their credentials to the President of the United States, what they oftentimes do, or to the Secretary of State, is they present gifts representative of their homeland. When the president goes to another part of the world, he oftentimes takes gifts that he presents to the head of state over there as representative of the relationship that the two nations have, but it's oftentimes what? Reflective of the culture from which he comes. Something that is illustrative of American life and society that is given. Well, that was not unusual in the ancient world. And so when these magi, these wise men, came from the east, Guided by God the Holy Spirit, under the direction of this star perhaps, when they arrived they came with gifts. Now again, these gifts are probably just representative of where they come from, but they nevertheless have significance. I don't know if they recognized that significance, but they had significance, and I think that's why Matthew details them here. He says they came with gold. Now why gold? Well, in the ancient Persian society, you never went before the king without offering him a gift. And when you went before a Persian king, you always went with gold because gold was considered to be the king of metals and therefore a gift that was appropriate for kings. Now, even today when archaeologists do their work in that part of the world, if they happen to be digging in an area and they come upon some sort of gold object, they recognize that whoever this person was that was buried there, they were a person of prominence. Uh, some of you are going with me on this trip to uh, the footsteps of St. Paul to Greece and to Turkey. And one of the things you're going to see in the museum at Athens is that mask. It is one of the great treasures of the ancient world. It is the mask of Agamemnon. He was a famous Greek leader, chieftain, in the small town of Mycenae at the time. That mask is made of pure gold and is one of the treasures of the ancient world and it speaks to his significance, his importance as a leader. One that you're probably even more familiar with is that mask. In 1922, Howard Carter, who was an English archaeologist, was digging around in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt and he came upon a tomb, a tomb that had not been raided, that had not been opened, that no one had ever seen. And when he managed to break through into the inner burial chamber, and he asked for a torch, he looked inside, and he spoke not a word. And somebody said, Howard, what do you see? What do you see? And his response was, wonderful things. <laughs> well, indeed, it is wonderful, and I've actually been to Cairo, I've been to the museum, I've seen the treasures of King Tut, and the thing that makes them so remarkable, so wonderful, is that so many of them are made of gold. And the odd thing is that Tutankhamun was actually a minor king compared to some of the other pharaohs, like Aminatep, 
or Ramses the first and second. But nevertheless, we recognize that he was a prominent figure. When these magi came from the east and they presented the Christ child with the gift of gold, what they were basically doing, whether they realized it or not, was that they were acknowledging the fact that he was a king. And they knew that. They didn't know exactly how he was going to reign, but when they appeared in Jerusalem, they inquired of Herod and the others, where is this one who has been born the what? The king of the Jews. We need to recognize that that one who was born in great humility, there in that manger in Bethlehem, was born to be our Savior, but he was also born to be a king. And you need to understand that in the ancient world, kings were not elected officials. They didn't run for re-election. There was no such thing as a constitutional monarchy in the first century. Kings ruled by divine right, and they had absolute power. Their word was law. When the Magi came from the east and they offered to this little baby the gift of gold, they were acknowledging him as a king. They brought another gift. What was the other gift? Frankincense, which can also be translated simply as incense. Frankincense is a particular kind of incense. Again, I'm not sure that they understood it. Uh, they may have just been bringing gifts that were representative of where they came from, but incense was a special gift in the ancient world. It was almost always used in the context of worship. Now, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 talks about the Philippians and the gifts that they were offering up for the spread of the church and for the welfare of the Christians who were suffering in Jerusalem. And he refers to their gifts as a fragrant offering. A fragrant incense. That's what incense was used in temple worship. It was used as a fragrant offering. It was oftentimes mixed with the sacrifices, with the grain sacrifices. Never with the meat sacrifices, interestingly enough. Never with the wine sacrifices, only with the grain sacrifices, which were sacrifices of thanksgiving. In Psalm 141, in Revelation chapter 5, we're told that incense represents the prayers of the faithful. As it wafts up to God, it is sweet-smelling. It is a pleasant odor. That's what incense represents. When the sacrifices were made in the temple, it was to offer a pleasing odor to God. The sacrifices were to be pleasing in His sight. Our prayers are to be a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Do you ever hear that? And they are to be pleasing, sweet-smelling, in God's eyes. As I said, used in the grain offerings, never in the sin offerings. Perhaps that is an indicator of the fact that Jesus Christ came to be the offering for our sin and that his offering is sweet-smelling and pleasing in the eyes of God. He came to be both priest and victim, both priest and sacrifice. Normally the priest offers the sacrifice, but he is not the sacrifice. But in the person of Jesus Christ, he is our great high priest. Isn't that the way Hebrew puts it? The author of Hebrews says that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He is one who offers up a sacrifice to God. A full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And yet he offers himself as the sacrifice as well. He is the Lamb of God. You see it in the stained glass window over the altar at St. Philip's every Sunday. And that gift is illustrative of the fact that he is the true priest, the great high priest, and the victim. And incense is used. It was used in all worship services in the ancient world, and in some parts of the church, it is still used today to represent that sweet-swelling aroma of God's faithful people offering to him a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. So incense was an appropriate gift for Jesus Christ because he was not only the king, he was the priest. He was the great high priest. But they offered gold, frankincense, and what else? Myrrh. Now myrrh is probably the strangest of all the gifts that they offered. And perhaps they knew what they were doing, and as I said, perhaps they didn't. Some years ago, when I was at St. Helena's, I had a member of the congregation who was a haberdasher. 
Uh, his family owned a string of clothing stores. Now, he had gotten out of the business, but he was very much a clothes horse. He, he liked clothes. He liked to dress in a very natty and attractive way. And one day for Christmas, he handed me a gift certificate. And it was a very generous gift certificate. He said, I want you to go up to Charleston, and I want you to go to such and such a shop, and I want you to buy yourself a fine suit. And I thought, well, okay. So I did. Um, I came to Charleston, and I had myself suited out, and uh, it was a very nice suit. In fact, it was the nicest suit that I've ever owned in my entire life. And uh, some weeks later, when I got it back, the tailor had finished his work. I showed up for church, and I was wearing that suit, and he saw me from afar, and immediately he came up to me, and he goes, well, that's a, that's a good-looking suit. And I said, well, thank you. I, I owe it all to you. And he looked me up and down, and he said, you know, you could be buried in that suit. And the first thought that popped into my mind was, does he know something that I don't know? Or worse yet, is he planning something that I don't know? It was really an odd comment to make. Then again, he was a rather odd man to begin with, but what a strange thing to say. You could be buried in that suit. I don't wear it anymore. Um, (laughs) Myrrh, I'm saving it for that great day. (laughs) Myrrh was a gift for a victim. It was primarily used in the ancient world for embalming purposes. Uh, We see this clearly. Uh, If you keep your finger again in Matthew and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, we have the story of Jesus' body being taken down from the cross following the crucifixion. And we're told in John chapter 19, beginning at verse 38, that after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also. That's the same Nicodemus that you encounter earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3. The same Nicodemus who came under the cover of darkness and was interested in Jesus, and Jesus said, unless he is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. It's the same Nicodemus. And we're told in verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about, listen to this, 75 pounds in weight. You'll recall that when the women on the first day of the week in Mark's gospel went to the tomb and discovered it empty. They went bearing what? Spices to anoint the body of Jesus. This is what we're talking about here. This would be melted down into some sort of gum resin, and it was used to anoint bodies. Uh, They didn't have embalming fluid in the way that we have today. Every culture in the ancient world had its own funeral customs. Uh, The Egyptians, of course, mummified their dead. The Greeks, for the most part, burned their dead. But the Jews buried their dead, and they buried their dead as a testimony to their belief in the resurrection. The body was a temple of God's Holy Spirit, and it was going to be resurrected one day. And so rather than burn their dead, interestingly enough, in the, ancient, in the early days of the church, they regarded cremation as pagan practice, because that's pretty much how it was practiced among the pagans. So they didn't burn their dead, and they didn't mummify their dead. You know how the Egyptians mummified their dead. They kept the body, but they took out all of the, what they considered to be integral organs. So um, the heart was removed, for example, and the brain was removed, and various organs, and then they would be put in these canopic jars, and the body would be wrapped. You know the story. That's not the way it was in the time of Jesus. These people would actually be wrapped like a mummy, but within the folds of all these linen strips where there would be spices, and one of them was myrrh, a gift for a victim. Now, it was costly. Uh, There is a city that is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, One of the letters that John wrote to the churches, or that Jesus wrote to the churches, basically, is Smyrna. The word Smyrna means myrrh. That's what it means. Um, It's now Izmir today. 
but evidently it was called Smyrna because the primary industry in that area was the manufacturer of this spice. So this was big business in the ancient world. For all we know, when the Magi came and offered gold, frankincense, and myrrh, what they were offering, you see, was the best that they had. And they may not have realized it, but all of these things spoke to Jesus' role and what he had come to earth to be and to do. He came to be a king, to reign. He came to be a priest, to offer sacrifice, and to be a victim for our sins. And he came to be the victim by dying, by dying upon a cross and ultimately rising again. Now there's much that we don't know about these men, as I said. But we can say this much, whether they were kings, we don't know. <laughs> but they were very wise. They were very wise indeed. They were wise for a number of reasons. First of all, they were wise to seek Jesus Christ. They recognized that the world, for all of their learning, for all of their education, for all of their influence and all of their power, none of those things could really give them what their hearts desired. We are living in a time in which people are better off, at least in terms of their health, in terms of their education, in terms of their luxuries, we are a better off culture than at any point in the history of the world. And yet, we have more people who are suffering from depression than perhaps any period in all of history. Which just goes to show us that we can have everything that the world offers and still not have what our hearts desire. Here were men that were learned, who were powerful, who were influential, who had everything that the world says is necessary in order to be happy, and yet they recognized that there was something else that was needed, and they were willing to go and seek for Jesus. Well, that's good advice for us. Because the Scripture tells us that if we seek, we will find. And if we knock, the door will be open to us, and they were willing to seek. They were wise and that they were willing to seek Christ so earnestly that if necessary, they were willing to abandon everything else and leave it far behind. We don't know exactly how long it took them to get to Jerusalem. Some have estimated that it took years based upon the fact that King Herod was going to slaughter all of these children who were two years and under, basically. That might indicate to us that they had started off two years earlier. But one thing is very clear. They made great sacrifices in order to find Jesus Christ. The Lord himself tells a parable about this. It's the parable about a man who went out into a field and he found a pearl one day buried in that field, a pearl of infinite value. Remember that parable? And he said the man went and he sold everything that he had, everything so that he could go out and purchase that field and acquire that pearl of infinite value. Well, who is the pearl of infinite value? It is Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father, the only way to find contentment, serenity, peace, that peace which passes human understanding. And these men, they didn't have everything, all of the advantages that the Jews did. They had the law, they had the covenants, they had the scriptures. These pagans had nothing. These men who came from the east had none of that, but they knew that what they longed for was never going to be found in the things of this world. And so they earnestly sought Jesus Christ and they left everything behind in order to find him. And that's what the scripture says. If we seek him with all our hearts, we will ever surely find him. And they were wise enough when they did find him to worship him. That's what the text says. They fell down before him and offered their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. When they found him, they worshipped him. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. And to worship him meant what? It meant to offer him the very best that they had. And they fell down and worshipped him, and then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Here's the question. Are we wise? Are we wise men and women? We are among the most educated people in the history of the world. The advantages that you and I have, no generation, your parents' generation didn't even have the advantages that you have. My parents' generation did not have the advantages that I have. But do we have the very thing that our hearts desire? Why is it that our culture is so filled with despondency and despair? Why is it that young people are out there seeking for something and never being satisfied? Are we wise enough to seek Jesus Christ? Are we wise enough, if necessary, to leave everything behind in order to come to Him? And when we come to Him, are we wise enough to recognize who He is and to worship Him? That is to say, are we prepared to give Him our best? Not just what's left over, not just what is convenient to give up to Christ, but are we prepared to give Him the very best that we have? Start with your myrrh. Myrrh represented what? Death. And coming to Jesus Christ, are you willing to acknowledge that His death is the only way for salvation for you? But it's not just His death. You see, in coming to Jesus Christ, it's your death. Are you prepared to die to self and live for Him? That's what you're saying if you bring your myrrh. What you're basically saying is, I'm not going to live anymore for myself. Jesus Christ is not only going to be my Savior, He's going to be the Lord to command me, and I will give Him everything. What's the biblical standard for giving? Financially. The tithe. The tithe is what? Oh boy, nobody seems to be really persuaded of it out there. It's 10%. Now, of course, the question that immediately arises, well, is that 10% before taxes or is that 10% after taxes? We're trying to figure it out, aren't we? Now, just hold on. We're going to get to that. Don't jump ahead. When you go to a restaurant and you have a nice meal and the service is great, how much of a tip do you give? 20%. So even if we give God 10%, think about it, we're not even tipping him, are we? And I want you to understand something else here. It's not just about money. God doesn't need our money. He gives us the privilege of participating in his work by giving our money. But he doesn't need our money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But I've got news for you. The biblical standard, the New Testament standard is not the tithe. The New Testament standard is everything. There's a wonderful story in the book of Genesis about Jacob and Esau. You remember that story? Of course, Jacob had tricked his brother Esau, you'll recall, out of his birthright. And he had to flee. And for years, he lived on the other side of the desert. He lived with a relative. And he fell out of favor after years with that relative and so he decided he was going to go back home. He'd lived in there for decades, away from his homeland, and he longed to go back. And so he set off. He had become a well-propertied man by that point. He had a number of wives, two in particular, that he cared about, Rachel and Leah. Uh, Leah was probably the faithful one. Rachel was the better looking of the two. Rachel was his favorite. He had lots of children. He had herds. He had cattle. He had flocks. He had all of these things. And the story goes that he set out, this great caravan heading home, 
But the closer he got to his homeland, the more he began to wonder if his brother Esau, who he had cheated years before, would actually forgive him. You know, sometimes people remember when you've done them wrong. And so Jacob began to worry about this. And so he sent messengers ahead to see if Esau had forgotten. And the messenger came back and he said, Oh, Esau's coming to meet you. Oh, great, said Jacob. And he's coming with an army. He hadn't forgotten anything, you see. So Jacob begins to get a little nervous about that. Oh, my goodness, well, what am I going to do? So he comes up with a plan. And his plan is this. He'll send a portion of his herds on ahead with messengers as a gift. And he said, when you encounter my brother, you shall say to him, these are a gift from your brother to my Lord Esau. See if that will satisfy him. The messenger came back and said, well, he took the herds. He's still coming. And with an army. And so Jacob says, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? So he says, well, I'll send my, my ewe lambs. So he sends the ewe lambs on ahead. And he said, well, he took the ewe lambs. But he's still coming. And Jacob says, my goodness, what am I gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll send the males. And so he sends the males. Your brother's still coming. Finally, he looks around. He doesn't have much left. He sees his two wives, and he says, Leah, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he sends Leah on ahead as a gift to his brother Esau. Your brother's still coming. He turns to Rachel, and he says, honey, I love you, and I'm sorry. But he sends her on. The story's almost humorous. You see all of these bands of things going. But here was the problem. Jacob was willing to give everything, but what? Himself. And that is what Esau wanted. He wanted his brother. Now, if you want to know how the story ends, you're going to have to read it for yourself. <laughs> but you get the point. That when we come to Jesus Christ, we give him our best. We give him everything. We don't hold anything back. He doesn't just want our stuff. He wants us. And he wants all of us. Nothing held back. Will you give him your myrrh? Will you give him your worship? Let me tell you, Sunday is the most important day of the week. Now, we're living in a culture where Sunday is just an extension of Saturday. But Sunday is the Lord's day. There are some churches that have services on Saturday night. So what? So that people can sleep in on Sunday morning. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't sleep in on Easter? <laughs> it is the Feast of the Resurrection. The church has declared that to be the Lord's day. When we go on vacation, we'll get up on Sunday morning. The kids will say, what are we doing? Well, we're going to church. We're on vacation. It's the Lord's day. It's his day. Saturday is your day, but Sunday is the Lord's day. Do you give him your worship? Do you acknowledge him to be the king of kings? Because that's the last gift, your gold. Is he the king to command your life? Not just the savior to deliver you, but the king to rule you. It's been said, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, Jesus Christ is not Lord at all. This is what it means to be a wise man, a wise woman. It is to earnestly seek Jesus Christ. And when you find him, to give him everything that you have. And in return, you will receive everything your heart desires. You've seen the bumper sticker. Wise men still seek him. And if you're wise, you will too. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gifts of the Magi.
We thank you that when they came, they gave their gold. They gave of their treasure. We thank you that they came with their frankincense, that they offered their praise, their worship. And we thank you, Lord, above all, that they came with their myrrh and offered themselves as living sacrifices unto you. Grant us the grace to follow in their footsteps. They may not have known much, but they knew enough. Grant us the grace to be wise like them. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you.